several Wednesday nights on love and what it is and what it entails. It's more than an emotional outburst. It's something in depth. So many things that we say and talk about that we hardly ever realize what it means to us. The Apostle Paul is speaking. This is the capstone of the spiritual gifts. He just gave a dissertation on spiritual gifts and what it should be and also the body. And then he is going to give us ministry gifts that has to be regulated or governed by love. And he says, Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Then it launches into what love or charity is. And it says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but where there be prophecies, they shall fail, where there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Now abideth faith and hope and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Father, we're thankful to you tonight for your written word, for the power that is taken to preserve them, for the pens, Father, of humble men that sought you that would pin it down. More than anything else, Father, we are just thankful because it's for us today. Lodge it in our heart, God. Let us be concerned about where we're living. Let us be concerned about where we're going. Let us be concerned, moreover, that what it takes to get there. We give you honor and praise, Father, as you breathe upon your words tonight. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This, of course, is the capstone to the spiritual gifts. And Paul is talking, of course, charity here is always translated from the Greek word agape or agape, which is divine love, or as one translation puts it, enriched love. Enriched love. And I like to look at it that way. It is divine love, but it's through the power of the Holy Ghost that came in our lives and enriched the love that was put in humanity. So it's love that is enriched by the power of a living God. We've talked several times about the preeminence of love, about the power of love, about the permanence of love, and tonight we'd like to take a few moments to talk about the purity of love. I was challenged by the word pure when we, we was trying to title that, 
And I looked, and on so many occasions, the word pure just jumps up in the Bible. Uh, Philippians talks about it, whatsoever things are pure, and then it goes on to talk about other things. It said, think on these things. In other words, think on pure things. And Timothy, Paul is admonishing him in 1 Timothy to keep thyself pure. And then James talks about pure religion and undefiled. And he also talks about wisdom from above is pure. Second Peter talks about stir up your pure minds. First John 3.13 says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So that word is used uh, a lot more than what I just uh, announced that it was, but that's a few things to pick out because I was interested in the word pure. The word pure comes from the Greek word hagnos, which means simply not defiled, but it goes deeper than that. That is rejection of any effort, of any outside force that seeks to contaminate. Now that's what pure is. Rejection of any, any effort. doesn't make any difference whether it's big effort or little bit effort of any outside force doesn't make any difference what it is that seeks to contaminate it. In other words, purity rejects anything that tries to have a mixture with it. It simply will not let anything mix with it. And that's why we want to talk about pure love of God, the pure love. And, of course, naturally, if it's love enriched by the power of the Holy Ghost, it simply has to be pure. It will allow no mixture. Nothing whatsoever. You cannot taint pure love with false ideologies. You cannot taint pure love with false doctrines. In other words, it refuses to allow anything to come into it. It's pure in itself, and it needs nothing else to strengthen it. Whatever else might would come, if it would allow it, would only weaken it. So actually you have a pure love as something that cannot be enhanced upon, something that cannot uh, grow on. And that's what God is asking out of us. Picked out a few things in the reading of this. It's almost impossible to get it all. But 1 Corinthians 13 and 5 says, Love thinketh no evil. I want you to think about that just for a little while because we're talking about something here that would solidify our lives. Love is not an emotional outburst. Love is not something that just comes, sprinkles on us, and all at once because we feel like loving and then it's gone. Love is not that at all. Love is strength, and love is power, and love is solidity, and love will keep you when nothing else will. Notice the last verse. Paul said, now there's three of those, faith and hope and charity, and all of them are great, but the greatest of all of these is charity, or enriched love, or agape love, or divine love. And then it's saying, love thinks no evil. In other words, pure love has no room for evil thoughts in our mind. And it seems strange that such a small, seemingly insignificant word or words could be the answer to almost all of our problems. Have you ever thought about that? You know, we as Pentecostals are easy with the word love. We just kind of throw that around just about as easy as the world throws around love. And some way it never dawns upon us 
what we're actually talking about. We're not talking about our love or love that we are capable of giving, but we're going deeper than that through the power of the Holy Ghost to a love that He is capable of giving through us. And this love demands something out of us, and there's a good mirror and a good tape measure that lets us know if we are actually exercising what we have the ability to exercise. I'm not saying we don't have the ability because if God is love and the Holy Ghost is God and we have the Holy Ghost, then ability is there. But we need to realize what it is. What are we exercising when we think evil? And of course, evil is something that would tear down our brother or sister or something that any word that was spoken that would tear down their confidence or their character whatsoever. And the Bible says pure love doesn't even think any evil. Amen? So uh, such a small insignificant word could be the answer to almost all of our problems. And what God's people must learn to do is to apply the healing medicine to the affected areas of our lives. How many of you know there's balm in Gilead still yet? <laughs> that they're stealing medicine of Almighty God. And it's out there, and oftentimes we fail to apply it to the affected areas of our life. I can take a disinfect medication and uh, go around the house and sprinkle it up in the air and, and what have you, or throw it, just take it and throw it up in the air, and what good would that do? It never touches the affected area. So we can take love and talk about it and throw it up in the air and just pass it off as saying uh, God's people ought to love or I love the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and body and, and all of these things. And we can take that and just throw it up in the air and cast it over here and never apply it to the affected areas of our lives. And because we don't, there is no healing there. But before you can be healed, you have to realize you're sick. Amen? <laughs> I mean, something has to dig way down deep inside and bring you to an abrupt, abrupt halt and say, wait a minute here. Wait a minute here. If this is divine love and this is what it demands and I haven't been giving it, then I've been under the false impression of doing our living under divine love of God. And all too often, love is pigeonholed. You know what pigeonhole is. Uh, that means you just put something up uh, as not needed, and we pigeonhole that as to be too weak and too ineffective when a problem arises. And we need to stop and ask ourselves a question. All of us have problems. They come from several different directions. They can be material problem, natural problem, problem of sickness, problems of disease, problems of distress, problems of depression, problems of confusion, and all such stuff as this. And we need to stop long enough to ask ourselves the question before we take love and put it up here. We need to say, can the enriched love of God solve my problem? In other words... Can I, by loving God and realizing what His love is, can this love for Him and for my fellow man, can it solve my problem? 
And I would be safe in saying, because I have to answer these questions myself as God gives them to me, and you'd be surprised how tempted I have been since these studies on love and what it entails to forget that I ever mentioned the subject. Amen? Because it entails searching out what God says about it. Not what I've always thought it was. I always thought it was in my life. And there have been times when I was fully assured in my own life that I have been under the influence of enriched love or agape love or agape love. And yet when you search out what it will not do compared to that which it will do, we find ourselves floundering around trying to find a straw to hold to to keep from drowning. Because we know there have been times when we have claimed to have walked in it that we never did. We only walked in what we assumed, and the devil likes that. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And the devil don't try to hide God's love from us. He just tries to confuse us as to whether we're walking in it or not. And so the Scriptures will tell us. And oftentimes we feel like love simply is not powerful enough to solve our problems. And this attitude comes from uh, a desire of ourselves to solve our own problems because we want to solve them for our own benefit. Amen? Any problem that arises, we want to be sure that whatever the answer comes out of that, that problem it comes out in our favor. Amen? And so we're pro trying to solve that problem without the benefit of God's love, without holding a mirror up in our face and saying, God, regardless of how this comes out and regardless of how I look, after it comes out, I want you to solve this problem for me. And friend, the Bible said it, charity or love never fails. Am I in the Bible? Is this what the Bible says? Then if it never fails, and that means it never fails on any issue, I am confused as to why I, as well as so many of the rest of us, fail to let love take its due course in our lives and solve our problems for us. Most of the time it's because we pigeonhole it. In other words, the results might not be what we like, and so we just help God a little bit. No sense in God having to do the whole thing. Why don't we just help Him a little bit? But this is not the way of love. And it's saying love simply thinks no evil. In other words, when evil thought or some thought of vengeance or some thought to do somebody an injustice comes into our mind, that's not love. Amen? That's carnal nature. That's humanity doing the thinking. And love doesn't think that way. And immediately when that comes into your mind, if you will listen... Against that carnal nature comes the loud voice of love that says that's not the way you do it. That's not the way you think. Because love doesn't think any evil. 
doesn't think any evil toward your brethren. And more than anything else, it just doesn't think any evil about anybody that's out there in this world. So love doesn't think any evil. And if we could find, I mean, if we could just put that disinfect, that spray medication, and spray it right there on the afflicted area. All of us tonight, just put it there on our lack of love, our failure to let God solve our problems, our failure to get under the inspiration of love. Man trying to solve his problems takes him usually out of the will of God. How many of you know that? And usually after being out of the will of God, if we escape with our lives, spiritual lives, we come wounded and distraught and disturbed, confused, uh, and very weakened and close to spiritual death. Well, all this time the answer is not way out there someplace, and it's not way up there someplace. The answer is inside of us. How many of you have the Holy Ghost tonight? Amen? How many of you believe God is love? How many of you believe that the Holy Ghost is God? They're one and the same. How many of you then believe that love don't fail, that God don't fail, and we have it inside of us, the capabilities, untapped resources of the power of the Holy Ghost. Oh man, I become excited sometimes when I think about the resources that's there in the Holy Ghost that Pentecostals have never untapped. We've learned how to shout, and I like it. Some of us even forgot that. And we've learned how to speak in tongues. Oh, we enjoy that, and that's fine. And we learn how to dance, and we learn how to get emotionally inspired. But have we learned how to sit down in the midst of this world's problems and tribulations, and when all of that is heaped upon us, and set down in the loving arms of Almighty God, and lay our head on His shoulder and lean on His breast, and let the love of God put its arms around us and comfort us and answer every problem. You see, I'm a firm believer that this can happen. It's happened for me a few times and not as often as I would like it. But I found if I will allow it to challenge my life, and if I will look at what it is and what it is not, and correct my steps, and get my steps in line with this, I'll find out so many things just fall in place. Time and time again. We expect things from God, and we've been out of step with Him. Amen? Oh, He's merciful. He loves us. He does a lot of good things for us. But as far as growing up, you notice the Apostle Paul said, when I was a child, I spake as a child. When I was a child, I thought like a child. But then he was beginning to say, in an instance, I'm not a child anymore. I've become a man. And the things that I just expected God to do for me, then he expects me to do now for myself because he's given me the abilities. Another thing love is, is long-suffering. Long-suffering. Long. Long-suffering. <laughs> long. <laughs> Come on, long-suffering. <laughs> A lot of us don't like suffering. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Much less 
long-suffering. What's, what's that mean? You might be displeased with the way somebody's treating you. So what you do is, if they hit your hand with a sledgehammer, you just drop a board on their shin. That's not, that's not long-suffering. <laughs> All right. And sometimes we don't like, like the lack of response to our witnessing. Okay? I mean, so you just witness to somebody. And you take your time and you take your effort when you could be doing something else, ought to be doing something else, and God impresses you to witness, and you do that, and you don't get any response. And so you said, well, I'm writing you off right now. I mean, you took my precious time, and there's no response to you whatsoever. Just write you off. Just forget about it. Or, or to your prayers. How, how many of you prayed maybe for years for God to move upon somebody's life and somebody's heart, and it seems like they get meaner than ever? They're farther away from God than they ever was. And the devil comes along and says, Well, now then you see, you just as well forget about that. But remember long-suffering. Long-suffering. And what about preaching or teaching? <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's, that's in my category. <laughs> that's where it takes long, long, <laughs> long, <laughs> long-suffering. <laughs> Wait and see some response. And then you don't see any response. And you wonder, well, why in God's name am I being foolish enough to coop myself up in that little office and get the Bible in my hand and get out on my knees and spend so much time asking God what His will is, what does He want tonight, and then deliver it with all that's in me, regardless whether it's poor or weak or whatever, and then no response. At least response that you can see. Response that you can measure by quarts or gallons or whatsoever. And so it's long-suffering. But the spirit of long-suffering, when we would want to cut it off, when humanity screams out, you've done the best you can for as long as you can, long-suffering says, just wait a little bit longer. Just stay on your knees a little bit longer. Just believe God. Just let love solve your problem. Do you love Him tonight? Let love solve your problems. I think Jonah probably gives us probably some lack of long-suffering when he goes and preaches. You know, that, that's a man that I admire. A lot of people don't admire Jonah, but I admire him. Simply for one reason, he thinks exactly like I would have thought. And exactly like most of you would think. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. I didn't want to go there. Now, why didn't he? He didn't want to go there because he had a suspicion. He had a suspicion that he'd go and he'd preach and he'd say something and then God was so merciful that he wouldn't do it. And so Jonah just runs the other direction. Now, I, I've done that. And I'm sure you have too. I've had things and I knew that God wanted me to preach and I just had a suspicion, a very good suspicion that 
he was just going to be a lot more long-suffering than I would be. <laughs> Amen. I mean, when you get down and you nail this thing down and it's truth and they can't get around it, then you're expecting results. And nothing happens. And so Jonah finally preached after much coercion. Sometimes God gets you in a place where you would rather be out there preaching to Nineveh than in the belly of whale someplace with uh, seaweeds all the way around you, strangling the life out of you. And so Jonah goes in and he preaches, covers that city, <laughs> and he preaches his word. And sure enough, what he thought would happen, happened. <laughs> Those people had the audacity to change. Right before his very eyes, the king uh, gets down to sackcloth and ashes, and even as far as the beast of this field does this, and they repent. And that does away with Jonah's message completely because he said, Yet forty days and the city will be destroyed. No ifs and buts or maybes, it will be. But you see, Jonah was preaching. Not out of the inspiration of love, but he was preaching out of fear of divine retribution from God. And friend, we get in trouble as ministers when we minister under the fear of divine retribution of God. Paul says, I need to preach the Word because I love to. Because I, I love God for it. And so uh, Jonah sees them repenting. He didn't have long suffering at all. In fact, he got mad. And he goes and he gets the pooch mouth. And he pouts. And God still loves him, so he causes a gourd to grow. That's the big thing that shades him. You know, sun was hot on him. And so God just loves him. And he causes that gourd to grow. And then God sends a worm. <laughs> he sends a worm there to, to, to destroy it. And there's Jonah sitting out there again in the hot sun. What's the moral of that story? If you want God to be long-suffering with you, then you try being long-suffering with somebody else. And sometimes God does change His mind. The spirit of long-suffering again says, just wait a little bit longer. Every soul winner, whether he's a pastor, whether he's a saint, must be, now this is love, must be long-suffering. Is that in the Bible? Did that say what love was? How many of us know that if we have God, we have love? <laughs> oh, and that's reiterated again. And so long-suffering is a fruit of love. I mean, that's just something that will naturally come as we love. As we grow in love. And we're dressers of the vineyard. According to Luke 13, it tells us about it. And as such, we must as long as possible wait for the precious fruit on that fig tree. That simply means being, being patient with others. And maybe being patient with others is like saying to God, Thank you, Lord, for being patient with me. And again, I'm going to point you back to the story of Jonah. 
Because Jonah was not long-suffering. Jonah was not patient. Neither was God long-suffering or patient with him. And sometimes we wonder why God is so short with us. Why is God so short with us? Why, why does His mercy seem to be withdrawn? And that's because we are short with other individuals. Love simply does not have the free access to our life. And we are not governed by that. And then love doesn't envy. The world is so full of envy that even Christians are tempted to get on the bandwagon of envy. And how many of you know that before we know it, before we are fully aware of it, there's a seed of envy planted within our very spirit. And instead of recognizing, hey, that's not God. Love will not react like this. We try to rationalize it and say, because I'm a Christian, then it must be all right. I wouldn't ordinarily do this because I'm a Christian. But we've got to realize there's two forces at work here and at war. There's this old human mind that thanks and envies and jealousy. And then there's the power of God that wants to take control. And saints are tempted to be jealous and envy of others' position in the church, of other people's house, other people's automobile, other people's job, or even envious of other people's personality. How many of you know that? Somebody is outgoing, and we're not. And so naturally we become envious of that, and like, I wish to God's name I could be like that person, and because we're not, and we become envious and jealous, then if we're not careful, we're going to do or say something that would tear down that person's character. Like that person is outgoing, well, they're just flirty. They're just flirting with my husband or are flirting with my wife. And the first thing you know, some damage has been done because you have been envious of their personality. Friend, let's be satisfied with who we are and what we are and what God can make out of us. Some people's mouth go all the time and some people never say anything. Amen? Does that make one worse than the other one? Some people are introverts. Some people are extroverts. Does that, does that make a person not God or not love God? No. That makes a person the way God has made them, and you can function in that role. Friend, we should never sit across the aisle and look at somebody else and say, I wish I could be like them. Let's look way down deep into the character that God has given us and raise our hands to heaven and say, thank God for who I am and what God has made me. Where He can take me. And there seems to be no end to the tentacles uh, of the octopus of, of envy. It just reaches out. It, it's just just octopus all the time. And it reaches out. And you find yourself envious on one thing. Tentacle reaches out and you're envious on something else until if we're not careful, our whole mode way of life is lived under the envious attitude. And love won't have any part of that. In other words, there's no place for God's love in that. And it has to be conquered. And so we're not 
We are not to live by our carnal nature, but we are to live by the power of the Holy Ghost, our enriched love, pure love, that will reject anything that seeks to contaminate it, that refuses to allow any outside force to be part of it. It's so pure that nothing could make it any pure. And I'm glad I got it, don't you? I'm glad that the Holy Ghost is there. My problem, your problem, the problem we need to recognize is, hey, look, this thing called religion. Today, I'm going to say it, and I've said it often. It used to be. It used to be that a man was called a minister. He'd have a Bible. He could preach you something and tell you something, and you would believe it. But you're not living in that generation. People don't listen to a thing you say. They listen to a life. To see if they can hear the heartbeat of God in your life. To see if you really are what you say you are. And sometimes they gauge us rather harshly. But they don't gauge us any more harshly than the Bible gauges us. They're not expecting any more out of us than what God is expecting out of us. For there again, it talks about love and all of these things. And it says, and it says, love simply don't envy. There's no part of it inside there. And so if we find one little tentacle of envy, of malice, of jealousy, we've got to realize this is old carnal nature. That's not God. God has no part of it. Love has no part of it. And we have to rebuke it. And say, God, I refuse to live by this any longer. Now, the Bible says this, A good report maketh the bones fat. But, because someone else is being blessed, and we are not, what happens? What will happen if we're not careful? Come on, saints. I mean, after all, I live as good a life as they do, probably better. I'm just as instrumental in the work of God as they are, maybe even more so. And they come and give a good report. I want you to listen to me, because this is what happens, and I know it happens because it happened to me. You listen to somebody as they come in this church. Now, I want to take this church right here, right like it is. And they come in this church, and they begin to give a glowing report of souls being saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. And you know that they haven't lived any better life than you have. That church has been filled with all types of incorrect activities and, and they've just yehooed and went around. And you know this. You're not a judge, but characteristic, and you, you know this. And you sit there and you wonder inside, how in God's name can God be just and add to them and never seems to add to us anything? Don't look at me so silly. I've admitted it. You just as well. And the first thing you know inside here, you're not so sure you like that report. But it says a good report. 
Hallelujah. A good report maketh... Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this now. Maketh the bones fat. Didn't say it make you fat. <laughs> said it make the bones fat. <laughs> there is a difference. So if you're trying to use that excuse for being fat, it won't work. <laughs> but it makes the bones fat. And we ought to rejoice... If there's just one soul saved, regardless of whether he's saved in the Baptist church, Methodist church, or in the Catholic church, as long as the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to his life, it ought to do something for us inside because we know God's still at work. And not just make it envious, it ought to challenge us. And we ought to get out on our knees and say, God, what about me? What about me, God? What about us here? What about us? You're not going to leave us out, are you? I remember just before Brother Van Hoo's experiences with the angel. Trinitarians were getting all of the ministerial gifts or gifts. Oneness movement wasn't getting any. <laughs> and he became envious. I talked to him right after this. In fact, that was instrumental in turning my life around in a sense. I had been a minister for quite some time, and I've been one of these beat-down type of individuals that never thought my ministry would amount to anything. And right after that, and he'd met the angel, why, he, he was preaching on the radio, and something convicted me, and I made arrangements, though I didn't have the money. My wife and I drove over to the meeting, and we talked with Van, Brother Van about two hours. And he, he said, I heard about this, I saw it, I knew it was so, and I knew we had the truth. And he said, I became envious. And then he said, I was sure that this wasn't the way of love. And so he said, then I went to my office. And there's where I lay down on the floor. And I beat that rug with my hands. And I said to God, God, I don't want to be envious. I don't want to be jealous. I don't want to have any malice. I'm glad that they are getting what they are. That God, don't leave me out of this thing. God, don't let me be without this thing. And all God saints, let's just get out on our knees to God and say, God, pour out your blessings all over the world. Don't let us be without it. Let us have it inside. Let us have what it takes to be able to glorify your name. Let us sit and learn of you and know who you are and what you are. And let us get ready for the last great outpouring of your precious mercy. It's not hard then to see why envious people are not blessed. Because envy and bitterness go hand in hand. And it's like a cancer. And if it is not stopped, it's going to just eat up the whole body. If it's left unchecked. It'll simply eat up the whole body. Uh, the Apostle Paul said in Psalms, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now, I was, I was looking at that, and I got a whole new concept of what that was talking about. That that's not doing away with anything else. But contrary to the statement, the way it's usually applied, Paul was speaking of his ability to be poor and destitute because of the gospel and not to be envious of what anybody else around him had. The Apostle Paul gave up probably more than anybody else. Had the abilities and the influence and the intellect to be as much as anybody else and as rich as anybody else. But God humbled him. 
and God made him poor and he lived in poverty except through the Spirit. And Paul had the ability to say, I can do this through Christ that strengtheneth me and preach this gospel, whatever you lay on me, and I'm not going to be envious of anybody else regardless of what they've got. And one of the difficult parts about being a pioneer pastor or a missionary, home or foreign, or a pastor of a smaller church, is the temptation to envy. All right? A temptation to envy when everybody else seems to have more than what you've got. And not out of a specially designed plan of Satan to sidetrack you and to bring bitterness inside of your heart which will not allow God to touch you. The Bible says love just simply don't do this. Pure love envieth not, but pure love rejoice in a good report. And a lot of times individuals will stand up and talk about how God's been good to them, how He just showered them with blessings, how they just don't seem to be worried as far as money problems is concerned, and they're doing just fine, and you're serving the same God, and you know you're serving as well as you know how, and everything has gone wrong for you. Nothing has went right for you at all, and you're sitting sometimes next to an individual where everybody's been right and done right, and everything's been right for them. And if we're not careful, something will start working inside. First we get angry at God, then we'll get angry at them, and then bitterness comes in. And any good report that they might give, we don't enjoy it at all. Not at all we don't. Because after all, I should sometime be on the receiving end of some of these things anyway. Friend, hold on. Your day's coming. Hallelujah. Your time is coming. If you don't ever have anything this side of the veil of tears, if you're always struggling and grubbing around trying to make ends meet and trying to make a living and nothing seems to work out right where everything goes right for everybody else, remember you've got a payday. Thank God. Remember one of these days Jesus Christ is coming and He's going to show you a brand new home and everything else is all done away with and all your worries, your trials, your temptations and your troubles and He's going to say, Come, you blessed of my Father. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Hallelujah. All the goodness of God. Love is not puffed up. Usually when something is puffed up, usually has an overbalance of air. <laughs> or liquid. <laughs> One of the two. <laughs> And bloated people, you know, you've seen bloated people. I don't mean by the gastric acids in their stomach, but I mean they're just simply puffed up in pride, and they may think they look good. But there's something about people that's living a sham that just shines through. You just know this. I used to be a little red-headed minister, and I'm not going to call his name. He'd dress up in the finery. I know he must have had three, four hundred dollar suits, and that was back in the 
sixties. He was doing right good. I mean, he was just about this high and every hair in place, that red hair just shining, and he'd just rev back himself and he would just strut. Wasn't any crease in his pants. I mean, there was a crease in his pants. And you could tell he never got on his knees any time. And when it comes to ministering, he could tell you all fancy tales and had the right words to say, but what was important wasn't there. But God humbled him. That same individual, God got a hold of him. God shook him. He must have read concerning what love was. And what he's got now is not sham. It's not a put on. It's not puffed up. It's not bloated. It is a reality. A false look always gives our uh, secret away. And nobody likes people that are puffed up. But every one of us is tempted to pad ourselves just a little. You can't escape that. I wanted to go on from that, but God wouldn't let me. Nobody likes people that's puffed up. But every one of us, and you just as well admit it, when you tell a story, you're going to bear down on the part you played in it. You emphasize the fact that it was your idea in the first place. I mean, you mention everybody else, everybody else, nobody's excluded, but you become number one in this thing, regardless of where you were at. You become number one. And a lot of us say, well, nobody else will do it. I have to, have to do it myself. But that's the way we become puffed up. And because it can happen before we realize it, we can find ourselves gloating in our own, own importance. But you know how to stop that? Just reach for the pen of pure love <laughs> and just stick it in there just like you would in a puffed up balloon, balloon and it's all gone. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad God keeps you humble? Just about the time I really think I'm becoming important. And something is really happening in my life. And somebody says some good thing to me. Then somebody else comes along and hits me on both sides. And takes care of anything that one individual says. Because where you have one individual puffing you up, you have two others on each side sticking the pins in you. And that's the way it ought to be. Let God keep you where you need to be. It's not the best table at the banquet, but it's the closest to the cross of Christ that's important. And love is going to make you give your place at the banquet table to somebody else. But it's never going to make you give up your place at the cross. You're always going to have it. And I'm going to have to quit. I'm not going to get done. This is good. I got a lot more of this. <laughs> Amen. I got a lot more of this. But it's all in the Bible. And I'm wondering if I have reached your heart like God has reached mine. To make us measure ourselves 
by God's Word. It's so easy, especially for Pentecostal people. I don't know why that is. But especially for Pentecostal people to just become fully assured that we are just naturally doing what we're supposed to do the way we're supposed to do it, and we never give a second thought as to what's going wrong in our lives. If we are a Christian and we love the Lord, at least we're trying to love the Lord, and something is going wrong in our life, it behooves us to search out where we have left off. Why these things are not happening. I am persuaded to this, that God is either God, and He's all God, or He's not God at all. That we can either depend on Him and His promises, all of them, or we can't depend on any of them. That the same God that saved me by the precious blood of the Lamb and filled me with the Holy Ghost is able to keep me and solve my problems for me. I have to believe that or forget about Christianity. Forget about religion. And quit claiming. This is what has happened in closing to too many people is that they have never known how to apply God in their lives. Although they have been introduced to Him, and many of us years ago have been introduced to Him, and we've just happily, go lucky, uh, skipped along, and never fully realized the untapped resources of God's power in our life. And because of that, we've struggled. Because of that, we've been up and down. Because of that, we fail to realize pure love. Pure. That which refuses anything. Will not allow anything, any effort of anything to contaminate it. It's so pure that if anything else comes along, it refuses it. It won't let it become a part of it. That's God's love. Now, you, you just can't do anything with that. That's as high as you can go. Shall we stand?